Chapter 3 Recreation and Eden Genesis 1-2 opens with the earth being or having become Tohu and Bohu that is destroyed and empty. Since the earth became or was destroyed the Genesis creation account was a mix of the original creation and the recreation after that great star war in the heavens. In the last chapter we read the account in Jeremiah 4 chronicling that very event where the perfectly created earth was destroyed. Not only was earth destroyed, but everything on it, including mankind. So, not only did the earth need restoring, but the human race as well. Yes, when in closely examining the properly assembling the scriptures, that historical reality becomes quite clear. Jeremiah 4 makes it obvious a second creation of man and woman was needed. But a shocking truth is, those two creation accounts of man and woman were still not the creation of Adam and Eve. Let's take a look. Genesis 1.27 So God, that is Elohim, which is plural, created man in his, that would be their, own image. In the image of the Elohim, he, that would be they, created him, male and female. He created them. And Elohim said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What most people miss here is, well, the obvious. The two accounts of the creation of man and woman in Genesis 1 shows them being created together, which Adam and Eve clearly were not. According to formerly canonized books such as Jubilees, Adam and Eve were created individually and at different times, with Eve being formed much after Adam, apparently years. Also, the man and woman created in Genesis 1.27 were instructed to fill the earth while Adam was placed in the garden of Yahweh and Eve later and were instructed, not instructed to fill the earth. Plus, the first two created in Genesis 1 were told to have dominion over the fish of the sea, while there is no mention of any sea around or near the garden. In fact, in the account of Cain being banished to the land of Nod, that would be wandering, he exclaimed that anyone finding him would kill him. Obviously, there was another population out there, considering verse 17 tells us, Cain, once out there, built a city. Cities, actually. The Hebrew word for the dragon creature that enchanted Eve in the Garden of Eden, of which is slated, stated, was the craftiest of all the beasts of the field, is Nahash. Nahash does not mean snake. Remember, it covered Yahweh's throne with its wings. Its chief Hebrew meaning is shining one or burning one, very similar to the seraph, the multi-winged uh, seraphim angels described in the first few chapters of Ezekiel. But the creation of that perfect cherub, which became the Creator's chief adversary, that's the Hebrew word for Satan, was turned one-third turned one third of the angels against him and was not some unforeseen shock to the Creator. No, the all-wise creators use free moral agency with their angelic creation, just as with mankind, knowing a percentage of them would choose pride, greed, materialism, and selfishness in lieu of righteousness and become adversaries, that is, Satan's. This was all part of the creator's plan. Yahweh, the Hebrew name for our father creator, is creating a family and wants real love, not forced or coerced love in his family. In fact, for love, honor, and respect for him first must be a choice. Then to make that choice truly real, adversaries are needed to fight, 
Otherwise, our choice, righteous choice, is nothing but hot air and our wishful thinking. The reason humanity was created is, if we choose badly, we simply return to the dirt from which we were created. But that's where the dragon and her demonic acolytes come in, being a necessary evil, pun intended. If we choose to love, respect, and honor Yahweh first and each other second, and spend our lives fighting those evil ones to keep that choice, we are ready to join the family. Again, if we choose selfishness, greed, and pride, we will simply die and go back to the dust from whence we were formed. The immortal soul is simply a lie, which we will investigate in an upcoming chapter. But one thing's for sure, our Creator does not want a gaggle of miserable, bickering, eternal children. No, He wants His family to be a peaceful, joyful, and loving family. <clears throat> Shifting gears a little here to the first century, that is the New Testament, there the Apostle Jude, that's Judah, comments about beings, that is watchers or guardian angels, that left their assigned posts of watching, either trans-dimensionally or simply off-planet, no one knows for sure, to get involved with humanity. Jude 6 states, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own, in, their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, that would be of Yahweh. Actually, Jude was referencing Genesis 6, which is a snippet of Enoch 7, which further fleshes out this astonishing story. Those rogue or rebellious watchers decided just watching was not enough and decided to get involved in the evolution, that is, the genetic corruption of mankind, literally, culminating in the great flood of Noah. Let's read Genesis 6.1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, and that the sons of God, that's not men, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Verse 4 goes on to say, There were giants, that is Nephilim, on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God, not men, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children. That would be Nephilim to them. Those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. That's a somewhat awkward way of informing us these watchers uh, procreated with human women and produced giants, among other things. In fact, the words translated men and men of old are two different words in the Hebrew. Strangely, the translators chose to call those offspring of the watchers, that is the sons of God, men, which by context is obviously not correct. Those men of old and renown were angel-human hybrids. These watchers and their offspring literally became the gods and kings of ancient times. As we will sh shortly see, these creatures were the reason ancient humanity worshipped animals and their human-animal hybrid offspring. In fact, a large portion of humanity still worships animals to this day, some knowingly, some not. No doubt, evolution, that is the evolving from animals, also goes back to them. Of course, the EPA's lifting up of creatures over humanity is also connected to the worship of the, those animal, ancient animal gods. Let's not forget veganism. The angelic animals obviously hate the idea of humanity eating their progeny. It shows our superiority. The dragon, Nahash, Having lost everything, including its dignity, was lusting for revenge, which is a dish best served cold. 
that's a Klingon proverb, was obviously the reason it was lurking in the garden. Considering Genesis 3 tells us this creature was the craftiest of all the beasts of the field, derailing humanity is exactly what it set out to accomplish and did. Knowing Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of Yahweh's creation, that is, the apples of his eye, this creature knew undermining or destroying them would be the sweetest revenge. And obviously, this crafty, vengeful creature was not being compared to the average cow, sheep, or horse that we're familiar with. No, this was an angelic creature, animal, being paralleled with its peers, the other angelic creatures, that is, of all types. This is one of the most shocking bits of lost understanding to ever occur. Again, considering virtually all the ancient civilizations worshipped animals to one degree or another, how can we conclude they were lifting up the average dog, cat, or bovine as gods? How silly. Now, these 200 watchers were contemporaries of the Nahash, that is, the dragon. They were the same class of beings, angelic beasts or creatures. One very overlooked passage in Genesis 1.26 is how the animals were created after their kind. But the only kind of animals existing at the time would have been spirit ones, which prompts the question, how were these creatures able to mate with human women? Well, one of the Hebrew words describing these angelic creatures in Scripture is shinin, which means changeable, or in modern vernacular, shapeshifter. Even though their natural form was creature, they had the ability to appear as handsome young men, easily able to seduce foolish physical women. But once the babies began being born, the cat was out of the bag, pun intended. Suddenly, all these half-human, half-animal Nephilim creatures, such as centaurs, which is half-horse, half-human, satyrs, half-goat with a man's head, minotaurs, a human body with a bull's head, began to appear. We have hieroglyphic proof of many that many of these hybrids were worshipped in Egypt, such as Ra, who was a jackal-headed man, and Anubis, who was a bird-headed man. In fact, many of these hybrid creatures have been found in our modern times, such as fairies, mermaids, and leprechauns. See Steve Quayle's Little Creatures. Stepping back to take a forest that is versus the trees look, it becomes obvious something of a competition had occurred. Considering Yahweh had created a higher form of human with Adam and Eve, the rebel angels, that is the watchers, were determined to create humans even greater than Adam and Eve. They did it by combining their angelic DNA with the humans to create superhumans and giants. By the way, giant skeletons have been found by the thousands in every country on the planet, some as large as 35 feet, and fabled to have gotten as large as 250 feet. Some even had horns. See the Book of Giants by Steve Quayle. The Book of Enoch tells us they grew as large as 500 feet. That's Enoch 7. But that could be an exaggeration considering much of Enoch is apparently penned from oral tradition. At any rate, we won't be sure until a monster skeleton that size is actually found. That is, if they would allow it to be seen at all. Regardless of how large, one thing is for sure. They destroyed humanity with their illicit evil knowledge, especially war. In fact... Even the good knowledge they taught was destructive due to humanity's immaturity. A good example of destructive knowledge is power. It takes great maturity to not allow power to corrupt the one wielding it. A well-known radio talk show host postulated the question, is it possible to attain a position in Washington, D.C. without being corrupted? I think the answer was 
a definite no. Another example of good knowledge being damaging is ch children being shown and or experiencing sex at a young age. It's a scientific fact it emotionally scars them for life. But sex when engaged in at the right age and in marriage is, a, is wonderful and a great blessing. Of course, children are now being taught sex in grade school. In consideration of these human-angel-watcher-animal hybrids, Cain, or pronounced Quain in Hebrew, was one. He was one of the first and most powerful. According to ancient Hebrew experts such as Dr. Olaf Hagee, the translators of Genesis did a very poor job translating it to English. In fact, a close examination of the original Hebrew shows Quain, i.e. Cain, and Abel were twins. That truth comes out in Genesis 4 after Quain murdered his brother. After Quain's hateful spirit became obvious with the murder of Abel, Yahweh confronted him. Why is your countenance fallen? That's in verse 6. But what the original Hebrew tells us was actually asked, Why is your countenance nafal? In other words, why do you have the face of a nafal? Remember, Nephilim is simply the plural for the offspring of the watchers. The translators translated nafal, fallen, due to the 200 rebel angels becoming known as the fallen ones. So rather than leaving it nafal, they translated it fallen, completely obscuring the truth. If not thoroughly shocked with the, this truth being stranger than fiction, the next chapter certainly should do it. We must keep in mind the dragon that is the ruling queen of this world from behind the curtain, is a lying spirit. But her time for ruling this world with her lies is fast coming to an end. It's all part of the Creator's plan, that is, for humanity. That plan is all laid out in the Torah, that is, the living instructions, which is thoroughly investigated in upcoming chapters. The greatest shock of all is how it's been hidden in plain sight. Unfortunately, all the religious leaders of the world are listening to the liar and her lying sycophants instead of listening to and or embracing the spirit of truth. The good news is the prophecies tell us the spirit of truth, that is the spirit of the creators, will soon be poured out on all flesh, while at the same time the lying dragon will be locked in the pit until the end of the millennium, that is the new promised land. When released, she will facilitate the final sorting of the sheep and goats culminating in the final great battle against Yahweh. <clears throat> One last thought before moving on, and with lying in mind, I hear people everywhere from family and friends to religious and political leaders saying they believe this or that. But how do we know what we believe is true? But what I have come to see, the real truth is a supernatural gift. If the God of truth is not instructing and teaching us, how can we honestly know if anything we believe is true? In fact, what shocking irony to find a lie nestled right in the middle of the word believe. B-E-L-I-E-V-E. In fact, Proverbs 21.2 tells us, Every way of a man, that is what we believe, is right in his own eyes. Something to take very seriously.